Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh Darox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. get rid of thinking when we're in the most beautiful sensation that we could be in, like making love. Suddenly a thought comes in. Whether it is exciting or not exciting, it makes a shift in our rhythm. A thought comes into your mind. And even if you don't want the thought to be in your mind, just that by itself becomes a thought. Thought throws us off our rhythm. In a way, it becomes a bump. How you handle that bump becomes important. How do you make the thought to leave you? Your power becomes getting back into the rhythm. So everything that you do is a challenge because you're getting back into the rhythm. If you can do it very quickly, you can create very simply. As a performer, this becomes very valuable to be able to make that shift so quickly. Mm-hmm. With the sports people, works the same way. Sometimes they're out of their rhythm and they got to get back to their rhythm. And even the announcers feel that immediately. So rhythm becomes the most important thing. Rhythm is a big one. And I've been thinking about the cycle of it, the up and the down of rhythm. There's that wave that's inherent in it. There's even the beat, and there's the space in between the beat. And they both are equally important in establishing the rhythm because if you took out all the beats, there would be nothing. And if you took out all the spaces, there would just be one long beat, which would end up not being a beat. It would just be like a, a tone or something. I was having a conversation yesterday morning about being in the circuit. When a circuit is complete, there really is no part of the electrical circuit that's the important part and the part that's not the important it all becomes equal in an instant of connection. But even if there's one inch between the two pieces that need to touch, it's the same result as if there's a million miles between those two things. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of times in thought, we're one inch away from the thing that we need to be doing or we're, we're thinking about this thing that we need to be being. And so it seems like we're really close, but we're just not getting the result from it. Take that inch down to half an inch, the half inch down to a a tiny little fraction of that, still no different. But once those two things touch, instantly, this whole line lights up. And often that circuit goes places you don't even know. There's a whole circuit of wiring hiding through the whole house that you're in that's connected to other wires going out to the city, which is connected to wires heading out to a hydroelectric dam so far away in this massive turbine that's churning from water that's being thrown by gravity. And all you're doing is that one second that you touch that, 
you suddenly become connected to the energy and the power of one of the largest waterfalls in the entire world. If we think about our work like that, if we think about art like that, we realize that every single one of us humans has this profound ability to be a connector to that circuitry system that is wired all throughout the entire universe and is always ready, is always active. It's just a matter of our connection to that and our access to that. I think a lot of times thought is almost like impedance to that flow. Thought kind of comes in the way of that. But I do think some thoughts are more beautiful than other thoughts. And I do think that some thoughts can fall within a rhythm of that current and can even be used to express that current sometimes. It's even interesting in thinking of circuitry and electrical flow that some elements are conductors, good conductors of electricity, such as water, and other elements are not good conductors of that. So it's almost like some things we think, some actions we take are good conductors of that circuitry. First thing that came to my mind when you said, what do we need to do? when we are in that moment where we should be in circuit and we're not, we've got a thought in the way. I was thinking about what pulls me back and I was reminded of something that happened 15 minutes ago when I came from the next room, was walking into here and I suddenly saw your painting, this new one you're working on last night. And instantly from the other room, you heard me say, wow. And you were like, what, what just happened? What happened? And so it's like, there was circuit inside of your painting. I saw the circuit. I expressed the circuit. You from the other room felt the circuit, and then you needed to get up and go and see what I had seen, which ended up being your own painting. It's just a beautiful illustration of that flow that continues and continues and continues. And all of this to say, I think the main thing we need to do when we become separated from that circuit is to open the eyes, to open the ears, to open the heart, to really look around, to notice where are the outlets in this room? Where are the spaces? David from the Bible said, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the highest mountain, you're there. If I go to the deepest valley, you're there. Even if I go to the depths of hell, you're there. And it's because everywhere we are, we will never be without those outlets without those circuitries calling to us. And I actually think that's what beauty is. I think true beauty are those lines of circuitry reaching out to us, almost like two hands. And the second that my two hands, the two hands of my eyes, the two hands of my mind and my spirit, my body reaches instantly. I'm not Jesh any longer. I'm not some small bunch of carbon and water. I am electricity. I am all electricity in the entire universe. I'm flow. I'm movement. I'm power. And that's when you're in complete rhythm. Your rhythm is already connected with the universal yes. rhythm. Now you don't feel lonely anymore. You don't feel nostalgic anymore. No. Now you're just in the rhythm, dancing, surrendering freely with love into that rhythm. If the boss says, get the hell out, you're fired, walk out and think, wow, I've got to take the next step. Something bigger is waiting for me. 
that's when artists continue creating that continuation, that feeling, that emotion, that you're constantly dealing with something new. It's a rhythm that you are not aware of, just like your heartbeat. But without it, you're nothing. Connecting with that rhythm needs finding the rhythm, not copying a rhythm. Not just getting in the rhythm because everybody else is getting in the rhythm. Finding the rhythm is what you're talking about. It's that movement in that transition. I remember in one of our retreats, I happened to be behind you and we were going through a maze. You looked to the center of the maze and you saw what was in the center of the maze and you picked up a very large stone that you had a hard time picking it up. And you have your shoulder to help it as well. So Mm -hmm. you carried it on your shoulder. And I was watching this whole process that you went through. Then you got to the center and you landed that big rock in a nice position with the other rocks. And you picked up a little tiny one and you started walking out of the center symbolically saw exactly what you're talking about now. You wanted to deliver a big rock, something bigger than other people had already (laughs) taken to the center. That's when I realized, wow, I found my pal, which has taken us to where we are now. Mm -hmm. It's to have fun and develop that fun so through that other people would find their own individual rhythm. We guide them through our own experiencing and through our intuition. So the sharing is not necessarily to conclude anything. The sharing is just to open up the minds, the hearts for a new journey. Yes. There's no point to playing. There's no point to it. There's no end destination in playing. When you have played for a certain amount of time, the kids don't say, well, we did it. We really played. We got to the point we were supposed to get to. It's just the playing is the point. Inside of play, what we call play when kids are in that space, you see constant movement. You see constant exploration. You see constant new interactions. They're absorbing so much but they're also expressing probably an equal amount. And what we talked about in the last conversation about that balance that has to happen between the intake and the outtake, I think is really important. That's really been with me over the last week thinking about that because I do in moments like this and in moments of speaking and moments of sharing, I talk a lot and I could talk probably for days and days and days, but I realized one time somebody who does a job like me, a writer or a speaker, actually spends most of their time listening. And if you didn't spend most of your time listening, you couldn't have developed enough to be able to talk for as long as we can. And so I've really just been more aware over this last week of just how much I'm constantly absorbing from everyone and everything around me. And I express a lot and I also absorb a lot. 
And I think that breath in, breath out, practiced over so many years, my lungs just get bigger, have more capacity, like a swimmer's lungs or something, have just been in that zone of deep in, deep out again and again. And I think it could be said that a lot of people on the planet perhaps have a shallow kind of a breath when it comes to that creative exchange. So we're all creatives, we all have lungs, but I think a lot of those lungs aren't in use to their full capacity. They're not being stretched a lot of the time. And so we just have a lot of kind of a shallow breathing syndrome. Not only they're not stretched, they cannot stretch anymore either mm. because the skin is so thick when they were younger and they had more energy, they could have expanded the skin because it wasn't that thick at the time. Mm -hmm. But as time goes by, your skin gets thicker and thicker. You have to begin your rhythm against time. Mm -hmm. If you stay in the flow of time, you become a normal being, doing the normal mundane things. How do we make that transition develops our rhythm? Another thing I'm thinking about as we're talking about this, this electrical circuit I was mentioning before, you could also talk about it as if it was a river. You know, and I really have always loved that metaphor of the river, the river constantly moving. You're looking at a certain place in the river and you call it river except it's actually completely different water than has ever been there before. It's a constantly new thing. It's shaping everything around it. There's a pull to it. There's a power to it. And we've talked in some of our earlier talks, I know about being in the center of the river. Our role as guides to people, anybody's role as an artist, is about getting into that water and having such a good time and inviting people into that water with you. And once they're in the water with you, there really is no separation. There's no powerful artist and poor audience member or great teacher and poor student. Just like the Japanese say, the teacher and the student between them create the teaching circuit. The moment that you join the circuit, you are a part of that. You become equal to that. To truly hear them and to be moved by them in that moment, you're in an equality of the act of creation of, that sparked that entire thing. You know, you're both in the river at, at the same time. The danger of thought sometimes can be that you can talk about the river when you're not in the river. And I think a lot of times religion kind of turned into that. And there's all these people on the bank and somebody's saying, in 1400, so-and-so went into the river and they wore green shorts. Hallelujah. But you're not soaking wet and you're not having fun. Why should I be listening to you? And I think if you're not in the river, there's no real point about talking about the river. If that's not leading to getting into the river, it doesn't matter what you did in the river 20 years ago. Kids don't sit around and talk about this one time when they played really well. They play. Imagine that metaphor of river is life. And everybody is in that river. And as you said, is moving with the flow constantly. As we move in the river, some get closer the center of the river because the water goes faster, it's warmer, and it's more attractive. Many of us, or most of us, freeze on the edges of the river. We slow down as we get to the edge. 
and majority of us are just frozen, thinking that I am in the river. But as you said, river is constantly flowing. Concept of a river as a life by itself becomes exciting because life becomes more exciting as the water moves toward the center of the river where the flow takes place. And the flow in the center of the river is totally surrendered. That is the key, I think, is the surrender. And I think that's what we're also terrified of. I spent most of my life being terrified of the surrender. And only really in this last year, I feel like, am I really starting to get better at it? You know, there's moments of surrender. And it's interesting, even when you say earlier about being in that circuit and how beautiful that is, how powerful that is, how much we really want to be in those spaces. I think a lot of times we get attached to spaces where we felt that circuit and then we just want to keep doing those things again and again. And that can be good, except there's a moment that comes sometimes when that place that served us no longer serves us, the well dries up, and then people just stay at that well. And they say, but I used to get good water from here, but you're not right now. And that's a tricky space for us. Yesterday in the park, I was uh, listening to music, had my earphones on, in the shade. The day was so beautiful. This beautiful wind was over me. I had my eyes closed. I was doing my kindred practice where I was moving my arms around. And from a distance, watching some guy do that, it would look very funny. A part of me is aware of that. But I'm at a stage of my life right now where I tend to value what I feel more than what somebody else feels about me. I was in that space, but as my eyes were closed and I was moving, still there was some vestige of that, you know, that spoke and was just like, Jesh, you probably look really weird right now. Are you sure you want to be doing this? And I checked in with myself, but I didn't open my eyes. And I just said, yes, because it feels really good to be doing this. This is how my body wants to move. This is what I want, want to do. And then I realized something I'd never thought about before, which was, if your eyes were closed all of the time, you would hardly care at all what other people thought about you. A large percentage of our thinking about what other people think about us has to do with seeing these subtle clues from their faces, noticing that we're being judged. I just thought, wow, here I am at the park. My eyes are closed. Also, if you could hear what other people were saying to you, you would also probably be concerned you know, about what they thought about you. But I thought, with my ears gone and my eyes gone, it's just me in this blackness, and it's just me in my body. So what decisions would I make? The only decisions I would make were ones that made me feel good. If I'm too hot, oh, I'll go over here to where it's cooler. If I'm too cold, I'll go over here. If I want to feel something different than this grass, I'll go find some stones. Everything I would do would be just about that feeling. I'm not saying that that is somehow superior to this other gift that we have of being able to recognize the others because that's what enables community to happen. That's what enables collaboration to happen, which is clearly one of the great aspects of the human experience. But I think we misuse that gift a lot because I think that gift of being able to understand and listen and connect with what other people are doing is used many times to dampen, to make smaller, to obscure 
to silence this song in us, this movement, this voice. Those things need to be on some kind of a balancing point where at any given moment, we can always check in with our own voice to say, what is my voice saying? What is the song in me wanting to do? And really honor that just as much, if not even a little bit more, than these songs and these voices from these other people. If we want to take it to like a, a music metaphor, a conductor who was so concerned about what all of the other musicians thought about his or her conducting, just go into this kind of a positive feedback loop of ramping up to become so agitated as to almost just be petrified and want to run off the stage. So there has to be this mix in the conductor of being aware of the musicians, but I think chiefly and primarily being aware of this flow of the song that's moving through them. And both of those things coming into alignment to me is like the positive and the negative of the circuit that has to touch. And it's interesting that once the positive and the negative touches, there are no more positive or negatives. It's just one. Which is the whole concept of Trinity. Mm. The concept of Trinity is so powerful that we symbolize it in different religions. But the whole idea is that union yes. that takes place to make the oneness. Yes, beautiful. The concept of Trinity is where the challenge can get its balance. To destroy the challenger, you lose the challenge. Wow. So you don't want to kill the challenger. Mm. You want to stand in front of the challenger. Yes, powerful. All you need to do is just be able to stand in front of the challenger. This is where most of us lose the journey. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we lose to the challenger, mentally or physically. And then from there on is destruction of challenger. Yes. We, everything that we do is to get rid of the challenger. Sometimes by aggression and destruction and sometimes by hiding, just fight or flight. It's like we use those ancient survival mechanisms to deal with the challenger when we need to be using the highest aspect of us to recognize that the challenger is not for our downfall. The challenger is actually a gift. And to be able to take that is not enough. To take it in and express it out becomes the valuable thing. That's where an artist can really create what they want to do in front of their audience. Yes, which is surrender. The audience, it becomes the energy that helps. And even negative, positive doesn't make any difference. It's the energy that builds up. That's so fascinating because if everything was a positive or a negative by itself, and then whatever we ended up meeting, if it's negative, then we're positive. We change ourselves to positive. If a positive is there, then we become negative. Whatever we need to be to change so that the circuit is always in balance. That seems to be the most important thing is to notice, how do I need to change myself in this particular moment? What aspect do I open up? Do I use my left hand or my right hand? Do I use my eyes or my mouth? Do I use my jumping or do I use my laying down? And then no matter what is presented to us, we can always offer the other side of that circuit 
And the second we find that combination, we disappear. You and I have both spent so many moments in our lifetime gone, not here, because we got lost in that circuit. More than just being lost in that circuit is actually journey through the circuit. Mm. Enjoy the ride. Mm. Because we have no intention of where we want to get to. Everything that shows along the way becomes part of our journey. And we connect with it, whether it's dark or light, whether it's painful or joyful. It shows the path in that loop that we're meandering in. It strikes me as well to notice that when we look at things very closely and break them apart and separate them from the whole, we can have very specific finite judgments about them, whether they're good or bad or helpful or not. But the further that you back away from something, you can see a lot of times how it's connected to a larger picture that you didn't fully understand. It's like astronauts look at the world and it just looks beautiful. <laughs> it just looks stunning. But then you zoom into pieces of the world and only this tiny part of the world that's happening in this one particular moment where this one person's having a very bad day and taking it out on their partner or their child or something like that. And that can be an ugliness. It can be separated from the whole. It can, it can be dark in that certain way. I just think it's important to know that when we're stuck in those judgment spaces, we're on a freeze frame. We're, we've frozen a specific aspect and we're just myopically looking at that one particular thing. If we need to do something about that in that certain moment, then yes, do something about that. But when you can't do something about that, there needs to be a breaking of that particular view and a, a pullback in a way that allows for a larger and larger set of ingredients, I think, to be on the table in front of you. Because a lot of times, you know, people are just so close to one specific choice that somebody made or that they made they can't see anything else and so they just become blinded by it i tell the story sometimes about having a little dime or a quarter and you just stick that right above the eye and it's large enough to block out the entire rest of the universe it's that close and so pulling that choice back suddenly so many choices arise says the first thing to lose on the path of love is your rationality. If you enter the path of love with the rational thinking as if it's being your job or being the source of income or being your means to get to this or that or whatever, then it's a different approach that we're taking. Love comes only on a path that is not recognizable. First thing you got to lose on the path of love is identifying that this is the beloved. It's identification of the beauty that we get attracted to. At what level we accept that becomes a level of love or passion something we get attracted to. That something bounces back in us, whether it's dealing with certain heartbeat or it's with a certain desire to devour. 
that journey, I think that's where we can find our rhythm. Taking that journey between being devoured or constantly expanding. That rhythm takes place only when we know how to take the journey. How to take in a journey needs practice. Some can do that practice in a short time. Some takes a long time for them. You remember that story of the man who was collecting roosters? The master had taken a year of practicing painting that rooster, which took him like five minutes to do. That's when the capability becomes important. That's when the opposites that we were talking about earlier about the Trinity, the two sides are opposite of each other. They don't have to be the same thing. So there is no need to increase your certain experiences. You are in need of having the balance between these two. If I want to follow somebody else's balance and copy it, it's not my rhythm. If we want to get to our rhythm, we got to go to what is that we love to do, to experience, not what is that we love to hoard, not what we love to devour. Where the experience takes us, it doesn't matter. You came in this morning and you were the second person who saw a painting that I had painted last night. And it was interesting for me because I have no idea what this painting is. I didn't paint it as a concept behind it. So as it's developed, it has found its way of expressing its existence, becomes the style of an artist, becomes the value of a person in the society. If you want to stand out in whatever you're doing, your job, your task, your accomplishment, whatever. Be the best, be the center, like Rumi says, be the center of the dance. Move into the center of that flow, that river. That movement toward the center of the river is always joyful because you're constantly gaining. Away from the center of the river is painful because you're constantly losing. You're going against something is destruction for you. There's this really interesting story I heard when I was a child, and I heard it many times since, but there was basically this very powerful general, like a warlord, but he was older, and he'd started to get this really bad disease of leprosy, basically. He was really concerned about it, and his servant said, oh, I know this like really amazing prophet guy. You should go talk to him because he can probably heal you. And the guy's like, I don't know about all this prophet stuff. The servant is like, no, no, this guy's for real. You really got to go check him out. He goes there to meet this guy. Along the way, he doesn't even get to his house and his servant meets him. The prophet's servant meets the general and says, my master knows why you're coming. He knows you have the leprosy. And he said, to tell you all you have to do is go to the Jordan River and bathe seven times then you'll be done 
and the general was offended. He was like, I'm this great warlord general, and this guy sends his servant to come talk to me? Who does he think he is? And he just kind of huffs off and goes back, doesn't go to the river. And he continues to have this sickness, and his servant says, why don't you just do what this guy says? If he would have said, climb the seven mountains of the world, you would have done it. If he would have said, defeat ten lions, you would have done it. He would have said, go conquer the titan, you would have done it. And all he's saying is just go bathe seven times in this river and then you'll be free. The guy's upset and offended, but the servant talks to him and so he decides to go do it. He does it and he gets cured. And what I love about that story so much is I think sometimes we've just been told about this great thing that's going to happen to us at some point in our life if we just work hard enough, if we just go out there and get it. And so we, we go and look at all of the other people who seem to have got it, try to be like them. We try to dance in the rhythm that they're dancing to try to get this thing. And I think it's something much, much, much simpler than that. The secret, if you want to call it a secret, the path, the practice is really just as small and easy as paying constant attention, unfailing attention, which is to say the attention of a heartbeat, to notice and then let it to rest to notice and then let it rest. You don't have to always be looking at it, but you need a constant rhythm of checking in with yourself and paying attention. Does my body love this thing? Do my cells light up in this conversation? Do they light up as I'm walking down this path? When I'm singing this song, when I'm reading this book, am I lighting up or am I not? Am I lighting up or am I not? Because that's when your body loves it. And our body loves what it loves for, I think, a really beautiful reason. And I'm not just talking about pleasure. I'm talking about joy, I'm talking about that sensation when the whole body really is lit up. And I think in some ways, it's kind of like a lot of people in the world are a lot of times like that general. And if you would say, hey, you will get what you really want. And all you have to do is climb three times around all the highest mountains in the world. People would do that because it's a very specific goal that they feel like they can measure and they can see. And if someone says, hey, look, all you have to do is pay attention to what really lights you up. They're like, no, 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 it can't be that simple. It can't be. That, that's too easy. Like, give me this great task. And it actually is a great task. It requires a monumental amount of strength and courage and bravery and faith to imagine that the most powerful path in the entire world for you could have already been programmed inside of you, could have already been planted like a seed inside of you. It takes a lot of courage to notice all of these loud voices telling you all kinds of things and say, well, thank you, but actually I'm going to listen to this very small voice that's inside of myself. My friend, Patrick, who is an amazing poet, passed away recently. I probably mentioned this before, but it bears mentioning again. He, he told me one time, the thing people are afraid most of in the entire world is the sound of their own voice, because it sounds like no other voices. There's a terror that we have in the fact that our voice can't be directly compared or measurable to any other voices, not even to good ones, not even to great ones. They're, you can't directly measure it, and because you can't, it will never have the value of good. So there has to be this leaping point at some point where someone really starts just honoring and paying attention to that small voice in a way that that thing that is a small voice, it is a seed, just becomes so loved, becomes so inundated with care, becomes 
so broken open with attention that the smallness inside of it just starts expanding and expanding. And it's like that story of Jack and the Beanstalk with these tiny little beans. And suddenly you have this highway up to a whole nother land. One time in one of my sessions, I told uh, my students that today we're going to be painting, looking at a model. We want to do a nude and uh, we have a challenge because we don't have the nude model. So I would like one of you to be the nude model. Nobody raised their hand up. (laughs) Only one without raising the hand up said, can we keep our bra and panty on? And I said, no nude model. Finally, one decided to do it. She took her clothes off and came nude and others painted her. Next time, she came and she said, I want to speak before your session starts. I said, sure, go ahead. She said, what you did to me was the greatest thing that anybody could do to anybody. You took all my inhibitions away. Thank you. From then on, (laughs) everybody wanted to come and pose nude in the class. (laughs) Even the parking attendant (laughs) wanted to pose nude in the class because they got to recognize that, wow, how simple it is to be so free, but be free in the presence of those who appreciate being free. O heart, set in the shade of a tree that is all about the heart. (laughs) If you want to share your heart with somebody, make sure that that person is taking it in, in the heart, not judging it. So what you were saying about the dance that you were doing in the park, As you were dancing in your own world with your eyes closed, your perception was telling you to dance. But then on the other hand, there was your visual aspect of you, which was seeing the other people watching you dancing in there. So these two were challenging each other. Mm -hmm. That allows you to develop. Yes. A power to be able to stand in front of that, not to kill it. These experiences are amazing. As little as they might seem, it means so much. Because all you had to do was to get rid of that feeling which was bothering you from inside as a result of your eyes seen outward. Earlier when you were speaking, I was... I was just stunned. I was so deeply in a, a near trance-like state because it felt like what you were speaking was just going like a rod right through my chest. I was being reminded of this thing you said about the Trinity. It's so powerful to recognize that those three are actually one because I've been so used to hearing about the Trinity, you know, for as a concept my whole life, and I'd never really thought about how ridiculous it is if someone comes up to you with an apple, an orange, and a banana, you know, and they're like, these are one. And you're like, you very clearly have three different things there, sir. And he's like, no, these are one. 
it's actually ridiculous. It's a completely ridiculous notion. Something was said about Jesus that I really love. Jesus thought it not robbery to be called equal to God. He, he didn't think it was wrong. He knew he was an apple and God was an orange or whatever, however you want to say that. But he was like, it's not robbery. No, it's, it's just true. I and my father are one. And to be able to say that two are one, to be able to say that three are one, they just didn't have time to say all the numbers. You could say all the numbers. 45 are one. 273,018 are one. To be able to do that, it's like this flip. It's this flip between, oh, there's negative over here, there's positive over here. Oh, you're just into dualities right now. You're into the, the multiplications right now. That's fine. And then that's one aspect of the physicality. But on the spirituality, you know, all of this is one. And so what was hitting me so strongly as you were saying that was that it's my judgment. It's my calling something plus or a minus, a negative or a positive, an apple or an orange. Me calling it that and sticking it to that actually prevents me from seeing the other truth. And the other truth, a pre-existing truth, in fact, is that they're all one. Because this is one universe, so everything inside of the one universe is one, like very clearly. And that oneness pre-existed apples or oranges or any of these other concepts that we have. But we just make this idea called an apple. We make an idea called an orange. A lot of people agree to it. And so then we think that has some kind of a power. And it does have a tiny sliver of application, which is helpful to our survival. But we always have to remember that there's another deeper truth that is always happening. And that's the river that's always moving. To be able to, in a moment, abandon the idea of the apple, to be able to abandon the idea of the positive or negative, and just reply one. Just to be able to link back. Because the second it's not positive and it's not negative and you supply the other half of it, both disappear. There is no positive. There is no negative. There's just all one. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, Solomon says, speaking of God. Just one. Accept it. Surrender it. Quit fighting it. Quit hiding from it. And I think that's really what it boils down to is we try to destroy or we try to hide from every single thing that's hard, the challenger, as you mentioned, from other people. And we also do it in ourselves. And I think that challenger, as you say, it needs to be recognized. No, that is you. That's the next branch to you. That's, that's the turning point into the next run on this, on this adventure that we're going to. And it's like the story of Jonah, you know, where the angel keeps saying like, hey, we got to go. You got a, you got a thing to do. You got a train to catch here, buddy. You're going to be late for this. And he runs. He just keeps running, 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 running. See, I'm so excited right now because I feel like I have a deeper, more visceral understanding through this conversation about what surrender means. I used to hate the idea of surrender. And over this last year, I had to experience a lot of it. And that wasn't a pleasant experience in a lot of ways. But even now, today, I feel it's even synced in deeper, which is surrender my idea of what something is, even. Surrender this, this label that my brain has as, oh, oh, that's an orange. Surrender it. Maybe it's not an orange. Maybe it never was an orange. Maybe everyone in the world, maybe two billion people who would look at this and call this an orange, maybe they're all wrong. Maybe it's something none of them know. Maybe it's more beautiful than they've ever seen. And to make it more exciting is to surrender it with joy. Yes. The moment you surrender with joy, 
the joy itself would help you to add more to surrender to. Yes. Because the joy that you get back would guide you into the next level and next level. We'll talk about the wisdom of madness. I mean, that is literally exactly what the entire thing is, is to be able to know that there's such overwhelming, explosive power in a tiny little atom being cut apart that makes the bombs. And to think that that's just metaphoric and that was a sloppy job compared to how much energy there really is to be tapped in the things that we can't see. And if one tiny atom being broken apart can create that level of destruction, think about what a human body with all of these atoms could happen if it went in bloom. If the human body and spirit bloomed all at once with all of the atoms inside of it, you could create universes from that one opening. The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh Durox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Nicholas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community.